Coming up on today's episode of Membership and Subscription Growth. That idea of focus on the customer and the product is a really, really big deal. And it sounds so obvious in some ways, but we oftentimes make things about us and about the business and what we do versus the customer doesn't care has marketed it substantially better. There is a sense of experience, of identity, of cool, of fun. Welcome to Membership and Subscription Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Scrobe. We have a very special guest on today's episode, Babak Assad, who was the Senior Vice President of Media and Customer Acquisition of Beachbody, creators of P90X, 21 Day Fix, and Shakeology. He created the offline and online marketing programs, bought advertising, and helped scale the business from uh, $100 million to a billion dollars. And uh, we're going to talk about how you can 10x your business. Uh, today, Babek is the CEO and founder of Round2 Partners, working with brands and subscription companies and helping them grow and uh, 10x themselves. And Really, one of the key things I would encourage you to listen for are uh, when Bob Back and I talk about the metrics in your subscription business and how to capture those and uh, what you should be looking at. Uh, it's uh, very important, and I can't tell you, unfortunately, how many people I run into that, uh, that come to me and want me to help them with their subscription program, and they don't have any numbers. And you know, if that's you, don't worry about it. We can work work with it. But uh, if it is you, you also probably particularly want to pay attention to this this program today. Also, you know, the the whole concept of subscription, you know, it's really a premium service, a premium product, and it really needs to be sold that way. And so, Bobek and I talk about a lot of that and how to position yourself as a premium product and why that's different than simply a transaction of, you know, I give you this stuff and you give me some money. So really fascinating marketing insights on how to 10x your subscription business coming up on today's episode. So with that, we'll get right to it. Welcome to Membership and Subscription Growth Podcast. My guest today is Babek Azad, uh, an awesome guy who has been building some of the biggest subscription businesses in the world. So, Babek, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be here, Robert. Now, for somebody who hasn't yet met you yet, Babek, what's important for them to know about you and your background? Um, I think first and foremost, I did not come from a – whatever it means to be a traditional performance marketing and really marketing background. Um, I was a math major, did investment banking, went to business school, went that route, um, started a magazine in LA that failed miserably, um, the best 25 grand I ever lost, and uh, you know, lived with my parents, did that whole thing. So I uh, had my own version of humble pie, and then <clears throat> really kind of learned um, much more. My, a lot of my professional career was at Beachbody, um, P90X, Insanity, Shakeology, things like that. Um, was there for eight years from 100 million, so it was already good scale when I got there, and left um, at a billion. So kind of got to 10, got to talk about the 10x thing, um, nice. but built finance and analytics. So certainly, I mean, I was, because I was a math major, I come from a quant background, um, but built finance and analytics first, and then transitioned into a marketing role, overseeing media and customer acquisition. So wow. did that for five years. That was TV, digital, social, Amazon. And then the last two and a half years since I've left, um, I've basically been out on my own. I work with a handful of brands, helping them 
scale their performance marketing businesses uh, with a heavy attention towards subscription recurring revenue businesses. Fabulous. That's that's really really impressive. So, it, it, with your experience, you know, 10X, helping being part of the team that uh, 10x to Beachbody, I mean that's a that's a very fascinating case study because. You know, most of the world is trying to sell fast, easy solutions. And, of course, mm-hmm. you, you ran count, completely counter to that by selling hard work, sweat, and consistent effort, you know, like right. three things that most people hate. Um, and, you know, everyone else, especially in health, sells simple, easy, and you can eat the food that you enjoy. How are you able to glorify sweat and work ethic while the rest of the world is selling results without work? Um, you know, I think a big part of it really is about results. And, you know, especially in the direct response world, especially on TV, um, even if, I mean, Facebook has their own rules now, obviously. But, um, you know, I think people, so we tapped into something that, had, to your point, had not been done, certainly higher price point than the 1995 product. It wasn't just a product. But at the end of the day, um, you know, getting some traction originally with results and transformation, and then, you know, certainly got a bit lucky about how people wanted to tell their story. And so UGC, user-generated content on YouTube, I think people thought that we seeded that or we paid people. People just wanted to share that. And so certainly there's a component of being a little bit lucky, but tapping into people's desire, ego, whatever you want to call it, that they wanted to share their results and uh, share their transformation and certainly when they got ripped or they lost just a bunch of weight and, you know, there was a visual transformation, um, especially in health and fitness, that's a big part of it. And so, um, you know, tapping into that and, uh, and really, you know, this idea that being a little bit counterculture so that it wasn't easy. It was, it was hard work, um, but it was also if you want to get these kinds of results, that's what it's going to take. Um, and then people seeing that there, that was possible and that they could see other people that were somewhat like them that they could try to emulate and kind of serve as um, those people served as role models. I mean, that's kind of a p- part of the point of testimonials uh, amongst others. So, you know, I think there's absolutely a bit of, certainly a bit, a bit of luck of t- timing, but it was also, you know, sometimes you've got to be a little bit different than whatever else is talking about. Mm-hmm. No, and I absolutely completely agree. I think uh, I've worked with, you know, subscription and membership programs for years and try to get them to focus on the results. They all want to talk mm-hmm. about their thing. You know, in the Beachbody world, that would be talking about the number of videos you get or the amount of work you're going to have to do or the, you know, the, the stuff, the, the, you know, how many minutes each video is going to take or whatever. Right. You certainly talk about that within the context of helping them understand the commitment they were making so that they, you know, when they bought, they had an idea of how much time or energy or, you know, that they were going to be setting aside to actually do this. But the sales message wasn't that and saying you'll get, you know, and they, you didn't also go in and say, you know, if, if you like 12 CDs or DVD, you get 12 DVDs for $59, then you'll really like, you know, double the offer and give you 24 DVDs for, for, for the same price. It was all focused on the results, the transformation, what you, how you're going to feel about yourself after you have this and you've done it. And, uh, you know, that is absolutely how all subscriptions should get sold uh, or and, and certainly how you can 10x a subscription business. When you work with other companies, how do you help them approach this and find their 
results that they're going to promote and use as their sales story versus talking about what they actually deliver? You know, I think it's um, – so I, and I, I intentionally use language around working with brands um, because for me – and so as opposed to necessarily – this is, there's not judgment, but generally speaking, not 100%, but generally speaking, people who want to build a brand um, are focused on product and experience and the customer or the client. And so that, for me, right off the bat, there's a bit of filtering about who I, who I work with um, and who I want to work with. Um, I just frankly think it's more fun. Uh, I, I know a lot of people, and again, this is personal choice for some folks, they don't really care as much about the product or the service. It's, you know, they just want to make, you know, they want to make a few extra bucks or they want to have a lifestyle that they want. And again, that's totally fine. But I think when, um, when you're trying to build a brand and something that's sustainable and scalable, and by the way, scale means whatever. For some people that's seven figures, for some it's 10. Um, that idea of focus on the customer and the product is a really, really big deal. And uh, it sounds so obvious in some ways, but what is that product? What is that service? What is that experience? And, and frankly, what is the promise? And, you know, it's interesting because I come, I guess from a marketing side, I come much more from a DR performance marketing background. I am talking so much more about brand and really this sense of experience because that is one of the bigger things that I'm, that I'm starting to see across pretty much every industry, that that focus on ex- creating an experience and creating memory and stories around it is a big deal. But at the end of the day, it's what's the promise? What is, whether it's the problem solution or what is, what is the thing you're trying to either solve or help someone with, and frankly, are you delivering on it? And then how are you delivering on it? And then you start working, you know, it's a bit of this, you know, use Gary Vee's language, not that he's the only one who talks that way, but, you know, reverse engineer what you're trying to do for people, whether it's for yourself or other people, and then figure out, are you actually, are you solving that? And, you know, to what extent, how are you doing it, things like that. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's so many people are trying to sell their thing and not the transformation and experience. And uh, it, it also, the way you had said about understanding your customer, and yeah, it's so basic, and you hear it all the time, but uh, literally, in the last 10 years, I have only had one client that showed up with a, a real understanding of, of what their, who their customer is. Mm-hmm. And I can ask you know, everyone else, even folks that are like, oh, Robert, I've heard you say you've only had one client ever. I'm the second client. And I ask them two, maybe three questions about their customer, and they're stumped. And they can't answer it. And it's... It's unbelievable how even though this is something that is rote that nobody wants to hear about, very few people are really doing it. Yeah, and it really, I mean, it's so funny because on the marketing side, we oftentimes, I mean, again, some some of these things are so obvious uh, in retrospect, but we oftentimes make things about us and about the business and Mm -hmm. what we do versus the customer doesn't care. And they care about themselves. Right. And, and even when things don't go right, you know, I remember I was talking to someone a couple of days ago about this, that, you know, when things go wrong or why you can't do something, whether it's technology or UPS or there is a, you know, uh, the Xfinity uh, internet went down, customers don't care. Like that's your problem. All they care about are their needs being met or what you said you're going to do. Are you doing it? And so, you know, I think this continual reminder of what do they want? What do they care about? Um, you know, I, I, it's a 
I, I've told this a couple of times. There's a very brief story about when I was in business school, I had a professor who said, you know, the golden rule is wrong. You know, the, the golden rule being do unto others is you'd prefer to have done unto you. And everyone's thinking, Why, what are you talking about? That's, I thought the golden rule is right. And he's like, no, the, it's, the wrong, it's the wrong thing because ultimately it's do unto others as they would prefer to have done unto them. And oftentimes, you know, again, in the direct response world, you know, we're taking people down a certain funnel. We're only going to show them certain things or it's what we think is better. Um, and maybe only a few people are Steve Jobs that maybe you're that good and you know what people should want. But in the grand scheme of things, it's what does the customer want? What do they prefer? What would make this a better experience for them? Um, and sometimes, by the way, that's to the um, detriment of short-term numbers. Um, and so you may not make as much money on day zero. You may not make as much money on, on every individual email. But if you're make, playing a longer game, um, you know, I think keeping that stuff in mind. You obviously got to pay the bills, keep the lights on, all that kind of stuff. So it's not about like be a martyr, but sometimes when you're playing a longer game, you know, how transactional and how intense you make things and frankly how you treat people, um, that, is, that affects, you know, the longevity of the business. So I get it. You got to win the short term for the long term to be relevant, but at the same time it's a question of how hard you actually press on that. No, and, and I, absolutely. I think your point on, you know, people don't care about what you're going to deliver. They only care about how it's going to improve their lives or help them. But you see so many times, like, you know, somebody is selling a subscription box, and they're focused on trying to tell you the types of things that are going to be in the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they even have, you know, past boxes where they'll show you what was in, a, you know, previous boxes. Or if they've got a SaaS, they want to tell you the functions of their tool. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if they've got a publication, uh, they want to tell you about you know, what's going to be in the publication and what you'll learn and what the stock picks will be, rather than how that publication is going to help you improve your lives and create a second income. So when you approach a brand uh, mm-hmm. and they've got this marketing that's all about them and, and instead of the customer, how do you help them turn that around so that it focuses instead on the impact that the box or the SaaS or the publication has on the, on the customer and improves their life? You know, to a certain extent, there, not that it's easy, but there's a bit of a simplicity of what you just described. That's a, certainly a key component of it, right, mm-hmm. which is start to shift the conversation. Um, and oftentimes, so I can, you can suggest all these things, results prove themselves out, right? And so... Um, I think sometimes it's, you test it. And so, you know, it is the, what you just described, which is, you know, if there has been so much focus on feature rather than benefit on the product or the service itself as opposed to what's the reason people care about it, um, that impact, that's what people really care about. And frankly, sometimes it's also we're all human beings. And so tap into what people, even though they're marketers and they're business owners or employees or whatever their role is, what about their experience? And, you know, sometimes tap into that to, as a reminder of what their consumer or their clients is thinking. And so, you know, that idea of, you know, when we make it all about us, people generally don't, you know, they don't care nearly as much, um, and it's not as relevant. And so you can tell me all these things and talk about all the great stuff, but at the end of the day, like, what does it do for me? How does it make my life better? Um, how does it make my life easier or whatever? And so, you know, with some of the meal delivery and meal subscription businesses, you know, it's, you know, it's simplicity, it's time with your family, it's, um, you know, healthier meals, you don't have to do the thinking, you can think, like, that's great. That's, you know, that's, that's the impact for me as a consumer. And so trying to, try to convey that, and, 
you know, with software businesses, it's, you know, whether it's data aggregation and, you know, rather than spending five hours aggregating a bunch of stuff, it's, you know, all in one place. But at the end of the day, the results speak for themselves. Your product, so what you say, does your product or your service deliver that? Um, and, you know, I worked with, uh, I work with someone who doesn't matter what his service was for me, but he was a, it was a vendor of mine and basically he had made a promise and he wasn't delivering on it. And, you know, I had a friend and I talk about this that, it wasn't a cheap. Uh, it wasn't cheap to pay him. And the comment was, "Well, figure out what you can deliver, and make that your promise." Because people are not. I wasn't the only one where it's we're willing to pay a pay what looks like a premium for what you say you can do, but are you delivering? So either deliver what you said, or change what you say to what you can deliver. Um, mm. And I think at the end of the day, like you can make all these promises, and you know, we talk about wanting to build trust and relationships with uh, with the consumer, with the client, again, if you think about your personal life, that happens over time. You know, and that happens where people either have integrity or they don't. What they say they do, they do, or they, they walk the walk, walk the talk, things like that. And so yeah, I think it's really hard to convey trust and relationship over time, I mean, immediately, because that's not how we operate. So <laughs> at the end of the day, though, you've got to, you've got to um, figure out what can you deliver on um, and I think, you know, how far do you, over, do you try to do marketing to promise certain things that, again, over time, it's either, you're either going to deliver or you're not. And people are going to find out about that, whether you're an individual or a business, and that really speaks for itself. And, I mean, we live in a world now where Yelp, Amazon, social, whatever it is, the reviews are out there um, pretty much from almost every business. So you can't really hide and hope that you can just get away with it um, because I think, 20 years ago, you could do that because there wasn't the access to information and people weren't seeking it. Now they know right. it's there. And, you know, the reality is most of, generally speaking, your, your people who are not happy are going to be louder um, than the people who are. So the other side is you've got to do your job to promote the positive stuff. Um, yeah. But people are finding it out. Well, and it actually, you know, in, in terms of selling the outcome versus the, the product, you know, I've, it's funny what you see like uh, the Microsoft uh, Surface Pro uh, mm -hmm. versus an iPad, and the Surface Pro is probably in eight, you know, nine ways better. If, if there were ten features, nine of them are going to be better on the Surface Pro, but yet Microsoft feels like they have to advertise it based on you know showing the functions and showing what it does, you know, showing the power and how the keyboard is soft and all these features of the mm -hmm. Surface Pro. Whereas you look at the old Apple commercials when the iPad came out and it showed a child playing piano and grandma enjoying that performance over mm -hmm. FaceTime and yep. how the, the, the grandma only had to press one button in order to be able to enjoy a conversation with their grandchild. Yep. And it was all about the outcome and mm -hmm. the, 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 the new you know, uh, ability, the new superpower, the new experience that the customer was going to have as yep. by having this item versus the fact that the keyboard was soft or not. And right. it's, it's just amazing when you make that transformation how you're able to 10x so much faster than talking about the features of what you're delivering, uh, yeah. whether, whether they're true or not. Well, and so to that point, 
let's be clear, let's be honest with ourselves. The best product doesn't always sell the best, right? Mm -hmm. So absolutely, the best service doesn't always sell the best. I think it's arguable from a feature side that the Droid and the Samsung and things like that, if you look at the technical specs, it's probably a better product than the iPhone, but the iPhone has marketed it substantially better. There is a sense of experience, of identity, of cool, of fun versus, you know, remember the PC versus Mac ads where it was a geek, you know, and which one was cool, who was cool and who wasn't, right? So um, I am not trying to say at all that, that it's all rational and intellectual and cerebral that the best technical specs, whatever that means for your product and service, will win. There are many, many examples where the, the ex people are buying the experience, right? Why do people go to certain locations, go to certain restaurants, you know, certain shoes, you know, the, what is, I forget the brand, but these women's shoes that have the red, the red sole and, um, or the heat underneath, um, and, you know, people know the, that. And so there's a sense of identity, of experience. I mean, frankly, soul cycle, right? That is people spending $30, $40 for a class because they have created this experience. They have created a sense of identity. It's a lifestyle um, as opposed to kind of just another gym that does spinning classes, right? So um, definitely not being delusional that the best product is always a thing, but certainly thinking more broadly about what does your product and your service, does it also include that sense of experience? And for instance, I mean, Harley-Davidson dealers of Florida have yep. been a client of mine since 2003. And, you know, nationwide, Harley-Davidson sells more motorcycles than all of their competitors combined in their, yep. in their category. And they know something about selling motorcycles that, for instance, Honda has never figured out. And mm -hmm. certainly Honda's motorcycles are high quality, but Harley-Davidson is able to sell at premium prices and dominate half the market. It would be like Neiman Marcus if, if Neiman Marcus had half the market and sold more than Amazon and JCPenney and, and, uh, and Target and Walmart combined. Uh, you know, having the premium player do half, you know, have half the market – that, you know, Harley-Davidson understands that it's about the experience and transformation that the customer has rather than the nuts and bolts yeah. uh, and features of the product. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just literally posted, I'm, I'm starting to write a bit about this sense of experience. And, you know, when I ask people for brands that feel like they've created real experience, certainly Harley is one of them. Um, you know, Nordstrom comes up for a bunch of folks. Amazon does. Um, I'd argue Coldstone Creamery. Uh, and even Starbucks really did this, right? When people were spending 50 cents a cup versus why would you go to Starbucks and pay 4 or $5? It was the third place. It was that sense of experience. Um, you know, it's going back to even how, knowing the customer. You know, my friend shared a story last night about Nordstrom that um, I think he's in Texas. I don't know if they do this in L.A., but at least there, they um, have little um, basically mini classes for kids to teach kids how to tie their shoes, right? So he basically goes and drops off his kid over there, um, they're there for like an hour or two. The kids are entertained. He and his wife can go shopping, and they come back, and their kid knows how to tie their shoes, and the kids had a great time, and the parents have had their thing, right? So you talk about like freeing up your par the, the parents to, you know, to provide them something of utility, interesting to the kids, all that kind of stuff, and knowing that that customer is more than happy to do that um, because they want some freedom, they want to shop, and like talk about a no-brainer ROI for, you know, um, and I, we always joke that with like, with women's clothing stores, um, you know, having something to the extent they're guys, they're coming with a woman, have something to keep the guy entertained because the guys don't want to sit there and, you know, just, just sit there doing nothing. Now you have a phone, you have some sense of distraction, but 
to the extent you can tap into that other person who is part of the experience and may not want to be there or may not be as excited, again, and this goes back to like, these are the stories people tell and these are the experiences people have. And I think this is how you start to build real community, real engagement, real brand uh, is by having, is by delivering this stuff. Not just one place, but, and that's the thing too, it's as daunting as it is, you build the brand everywhere. So it's being thoughtful about the various touch points people are going to have and are you consistent? Um, and are you, are you consistent and really caring about them? Well, you know, like you mentioned Starbucks. I mean, there's, there's more than 25,000 – Starbucks has more than 25,000 retail locations around the world. Mm-hmm. And, if it, and if this – you know, if sales and growth were really driven by quality, then Dunkin' Donuts would have more retail locations, and they're, you know, fewer than 11,000. So they're, they're right. way behind Starbucks, even though – Dunkin' Donuts has been around far longer. So it's really right. not the quality of the product or the coffee. It's about the, the experience. So one of the other things is, I mean, you've been in direct response for years and, uh, and, and really integrated marketing over mm-hmm. you know, several different channels. What are the metrics that you want to review when you're analyzing the growth opportunities of a, of a brand, of a subscription business? Yeah, I, I look, I think the, you know, the, uh, I usually, I do have a little bit of a framework um, that doesn't matter what kind of industry it's in, but if you're in some kind of sick recurring revenue subscription business, you know, I, first thing I look at generally is retention, stick rates, um, can, a cancel curve, churn, things like that. So, you know, it's, especially when a business has some activity. So let, let me assume it's five to 10 million and certainly in the nine figures and beyond, um, it, it's the same thing which is how long, once you get a customer, how long do they stick around, right? Like mm-hmm. that part's not really rocket science, but I think there are a couple different ways to slice and dice that. So, you know, for folks who have a regular recurring billing, like let's say a Netflix or like Proactive or pretty much everyone's on the same thing, you know, how long, how many months do people stick around or how many billing cycles do they stick around? As opposed to some of the subscription box companies, you can pause. You can go every month, every two months, quarterly, whatever it is, right? So sometimes the metrics have got to be tweaked a little bit. Um, that con- so first of all, how long do people what, how long do people stick around? You know, from cycle one, cycle two, shipment three, shipment four, that kind of thing. Where are the major drop-off points? Um, and then definitely looking at churn, like that captures churn a little bit, but also looking at what is the time to cancel because that can be sometimes you're looking lagging, but if you're looking at time to cancel then that may be an earlier indicator as opposed to generally that analysis I described. You may do monthly as opposed to intra-month. You can see our customers who are coming in this month and last month, are they canceling at a faster or slower rate? And so looking at what kind of change. Um, and then at the end of the day, look, that's, especially when you're running paid media, you have to know that to help inform a unit economics um, margin model um, to understand what really is the, life, the you know, immediate and lifetime revenue and gross margin you're getting from a customer to know essentially how much you pay to acquire a customer, right? And so there are, I say it again, there are, I focus on basics and fundamentals, but the number of businesses that I've touched where eight-figure business and beyond that they don't really have a great grasp of this and just how much of an impact it, 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 it plays in terms of understanding how long do people stick around, you know, then to the extent you can look at different layers of granularity of is it by traffic? So is it Facebook versus TV versus direct mail, by offer, by frequency? You know, what are the different ways that you can cut it, again, appropriate for your business, and then use that to inform 
if customers from certain places are worth more, then you can acquire them. You can spend more to acquire them, right? So, but having those things in place, and then really this goes to where the key levers in the business because everyone is resource constrained. So how do you think about where to deploy time, people, dollars? Um, and because you are limited, everyone is to their own to their, to their own degree. So how do you then start to test and optimize? Um, you know, and I think you can play this game of acquisition retention all day long. You've got to have some core uh, fundamentals in place, and then certainly your operating infrastructure um, has to be in place. So I wrote a long piece about Blue Apron, and I think separate from their, you know, right now at least their decline in the stock market, you know, they were playing this game of acquisition because they had venture funding. But, right. you know, their food is not a high-margin business, so at some point you're going to have to amortize your costs over, you know, your overhead and your rent and your salaries and tech. So you've got to have an understanding of that too. But at the end of the day, it's, if you can't keep people sticking around, and that's usually an indicator, whether or not you're paying for them or not, that's usually an indicator that if, you know, you're losing people in two months, you're losing everybody, then there's probably something that's wrong from a product and service fit perspective. Um, but then at the end of the day, it's a bit of a math problem is, What's a customer worth? How much can you afford to pay for them? What kind of cash can you put out there? Things like that. And then you start to work it pretty hard. Yeah, it's a, it's, you know, if, you're, if you're losing your customers you know, at a rate of you – know, I've, I've seen quite a few folks come in. Maybe even it's 10, 10% or 15% is, is not unusual in some niches. Uh, and if you're losing your customers that quickly, even if you've always lost them that, quickly and you think that that's normal or that you know other people who are losing that quickly and it feels like you're all in the same boat, you know, there's a, there's a big disconnect between the promise of your sales message and the, um, and, and the delivery and or you had some sort of free trial offer where, mm -hmm. you know, folks are able to, you know, jump in with, you know, for little or nothing, it's like you're bribing them to take your thing, and sure. they never had any intention of, of keeping it. You're not building a tribe of supporters. You're just giving away stuff to people who will never become your customers. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think people sometimes misconstrue some of this criticism or at least pointing out these things as a criticism of the model itself. It's, no, I mean, to your point, it's, all right, what, what, do you, what do people want? What do they expect? How much are they paying, like, are you delivering on that? And, you know, not that this stuff is easy, and I think different, you know, whether you're in software or in subscription box, you know, it's, is it a need? Like, I think we're, we're going to see when the market, you know, we go through uh, economic cycles, some of these boxes are going to, you know, are more disposable income um, related than they are, you know, pure need. Um, as much as people want to be entertained and like stuff, and there's definitely a drug that happens when they order and a box shows up on their doorstep, um, some things are more fundamental than others. And so, you know, I think that is, you unfortunately are going to see some shakeout in that. Um, but at the end of the day, look, it's what is the value delivery? And there's got to be some utility or entertainment or something that is core and fundamental. But, you know, when you lose 30% of your customers, um, you know, month over month, that's probably saying something about, you know, is, is why, why is that? Um, yeah. uh, you obviously got to manage your, your model, but there's, what, what is happening there that, uh, especially when you talk about longevity. And that's, that's really where, I mean, I think in the short term, you can manage through that kind of stuff. In the longer term, I think there's got to be something that's more sticky. Um, yeah, and it may, not be, it may not be a month after month. Like I may go to Disney once a year, but, you know, I go there and I spend a chunk. Um, 
because it's a great experience, right? And well, Disney is not things, Disney is not low cost, but you know it's and they can afford to do that, right? But it's every business the, has got to play their own game. The the other the, I think one of the I mean one of the real interesting points that you made there, uh, all subscriptions are a premium product, and they've got to be sold as a premium as a luxury uh, because. You don't need the subscription box. It's cool, but you don't need it. And you know, the, you know, the, really, the, you know, we try to make our clients dependent on it. You know, certainly SaaS, we want to have them built into their business in such a way that they can't get it out. But really, it's all a, a luxury product, and it really needs to be sold as a premium brand so that folks want it and it helps create a, a feeling. And, yeah, uh, I, I was around and uh, I, I saw a huge shakeout in 2008 and 2009 in the subscription world, and a lot of people thought it would, they didn't, didn't work, that the, that the whole model was broken, but it was really uh, how people were selling it. One of the things I wanted to get into with the metrics was you actually had to create these as part of you know, Beachbody. You, you were real, and you do these for, for the, your clients and work them through. I can't tell you how many folks that I work with, they don't have the cohort analysis even by month, much right. less by you know, uh, lead source or mm-hmm. you know, sales process. How sure. do you actually how does somebody actually do this? You know, what, what are some of the, the, the nuts and bolts stuff so that they actually have these basic reports that they can look at and understand how, the, how their business should be run? Sure. So, I mean, I think let me just use a, um, a subscription box business as an example, but sure. the process applies whether you're in software, digital, whatever it is. Um, you know, I think at the simplistic level, what you just said is way out, where I, I always start Simple and high level first. Um, and, you know, and I was a math major and like everyone thinks, oh, we get into all this hardcore stuff. Yeah, at some point, but start with the basics first and then build over there. And I've worked with people who have super advanced and super nothing. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, let's say with the subscription box business, it's frankly like how many people did you acquire? And let's assume paying customer in January, in February, in March, and then literally track them over time. So how many people who you acquired in January – um, did you bill in February, in March, in April, and do the same thing? And basically, it's whether it's month one, month two, shipment one, shipment two, whatever that appropriate thing is. If you have an annual license, you, you do it that way. Um, but really, it's – and by the way, if you acquire leads as opposed to you look at it from a lead basis versus a customer basis, that's fine. Just know when you acquire leads, how long does it take to start monetizing? Or once an, a lead is acquired in January – at what, what was their value at the end of January, at the end of February, at the end of March, and so on. But that's the simplistic level, and I look at it both. Um, I look at it a few different ways that are, again, real, pretty high level. One is by count. So how many shipments did they get in you know, the first month, two months, three months, so on? Um, and then look at it gross and net of retur- returns and refunds, and then um, look at it by dollar value. So sometimes the, those numbers will be different because your higher value people may be turning quicker or longer or whatever the case may be. But at the very simplistic level, break down your lead or customer or client base into months that they started or joined, again, whatever applies for you, and look at them gross and net, um, and both by count and by dollars. Um, that is the very basic level, and that is if you can do that, it's a lot more to your point than many other people have. And sometimes it literally is, let's say it's a Shopify download 
or it's out of your order management system. And if you don't have that person, you can go to Upwork or somewhere else, get someone who is good at Excel. Um, you know, the, generally speaking, the basics of that analysis are not, you don't need a statistical tool. You need Excel yeah. and a data dump, and, uh, and you will at least start to get there. And then undoubtedly it raises questions, and there are things that will start to trickle, the, trickle up. That's great, but you at least have a baseline. And if that means yeah. you don't even go and backfill for 2016 and 2015, fine. Just start with where you are, and then that starts. Then you've got to create a bit of a process that every, every whatever month or two months or whatever it is, you update it, and then you are trying to test and optimize to improve those metrics. That is, that is awesome because uh, especially the, uh, the customer value, that average customer value over time is kind of my secret weapon uh, in yep. managing the health. And you, 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 if you have that, like you say, all you need is a download and an Excel file, and you know, our team does this for folks all the time that come in that just don't even have this because uh, – and the reason why I like customer value more than the numbers is because very often we're doing upsell of mm -hmm. follow-up sure. sequences. So when people come in, we're purposely trying to upgrade them to higher levels as part of the new member onboarding program. Sure or offer them other products that they might be interested in. And so, you know, look, you, know, you can make a huge difference in the customer value within the first 30 days if you've got a system in place. And so my, managing the dollars is where you should be. So, Babak, uh, uh, thank you so much. How can folks find out more about your background, track down that article you wrote uh, that, that gives some more information? Uh, how, what are, what, where, where can folks find you and, and, and can connect with you? Sure. Uh, two easy places. I'm on LinkedIn, um, and basically in every social handle, I'm Bob Akazad, B-A-B-A-K-A-Z-A-D, and then my site is the same thing. It's bobakazad.com. Um, I can give you links. Um, but e both places, um, easily accessible. My content's all there. It's all free. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, certainly happy to chat with people um, if they want to. But, yeah, those are, those are the two easiest places to get me. What a miracle that bobakazad was .com was available. You know, Bob Akazad at Gmail was not, and I was an early beta user. So there is another <laughs> one, at least one more in Iran. Um, and uh, he snagged it, but I have all of their other ones. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> BobAkazad.com, B-A-B-A-K-A-Z-A-D.com. You can find him there uh, or Bob Akazad on uh, Twitter. Uh, Bob, thank you so much. This is a very informative, very useful, and real high-level, high-energy uh, overview of what it takes to be a successful brand, much less a, a subscription brand. So thank you so much. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, a lot of great insights there. And if you need help with your numbers, just let me know. Hit, you send me a quick email, rs at robertscrobe.com, R-O-B-E-R-T-S-K-R-O-B.com. Uh, my team has worked with a lot of folks to help them you know, calculate these numbers and get these things done and uh, can help you create a spreadsheet that will allow you to uh, or somebody on your team to track this stuff going forward. And there's quite a few tools, depending on what sort of merchant account that you're using, that, uh, that could calculate a lot of this. So just send me a quick email if you would like to get some more of those numbers uh, or anything else that you heard. I'd love to hear your feedback. And, uh, and also, if you're not already, subscribe. What are you waiting on? 
You don't want to miss another episode of Membership and Subscription Growth when you've got guests like Babak Assad with you know, talking about how to position your subscription program as a premium service. Uh, so these are absolutely uh, critical, critical training for anybody growing a subscription business today. And also, hey, check out some of the past episodes because uh, you know, while Vipac was awesome today, uh, there have been a, n- a number of uh, terrific guests, including Amir Elagizi with Great Joy, who has worked with, you know, as a platform, provided a platform for more than 4,000 subscription boxes uh, as uh, folks are growing and scaling their business. You think with uh, you know working with four thousand different subscription businesses that maybe Amir has something to, to perhaps share with you. Uh, also, a great interview from uh, eighty twenty marketing and AdWords marketing expert Perry Marshall. And uh, actually, that was he interviewed me for his guests. But uh, so uh, so, but Perry Marshall was uh, was very gracious and uh, for and a gracious host. And uh, you'll absolutely enjoy uh, that interview. I, I don't say do say so myself. And geez, you've got uh, Dina Bronze of Kitnip Box. You've got uh, uh, Liz Cadman of My Subscription Addiction. Lisa Sugar of Pop Sugar, a media mogul herself, and also uh, has her own subscription box. So a lot of great folks that uh, that you can learn from here on membership and subscription growth. Appreciate you. Uh, hey, I want to know what you're thinking and now this, you know, wh- how this is helpful. And uh, if you have any suggestions, feel free to send me an email, rs at robertscrobe.com, or uh, you know, go and uh, leave a comment uh, at iTunes. And uh, hey, you know, that's kind of how this thing you know gets gets around and people know that this uh, that this is helpful so if it's helpful to you and uh, you want us to keep doing this then uh, leave us a review and let us know thank you and uh, we'll talk with you next time on membership and subscription growth